and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Charles Eisenstein. Charles is the author of the recently released book, Sacred Economics, Money, Gift, and Society in the Age of Transition, as well as his earlier book, The Ascent of Humanity. Charles teaches at Goddard College and is a frequent public speaker on topics of money, civilization, and transition, all of which are incredibly timely. Charles, welcome. Thanks, Miriam. Tell us about your new book, Sacred Economics. What is sacred about economics? Well, not much right now, but potentially we understand that that on the deepest level, economics is really about the flow of gifts. So it should be sacred, as sacred as a gift can be. But the book is about what happened to money to make it not sacred anymore, and or to economy to make it not sacred, or even to make it the opposite of sacred. You know, people who are who are spiritual are supposed to not have too much to do with the world of commerce. Uh, but why is that when really it's about the circulation of gifts? So the book is about what happened to money to make it not sacred and what money could become birthed by the crisis that is happening today. Well, the two sort of go hand in hand. I mean, we've, we've used money to foster this globalization of the world economy and we've gotten into trouble. What do you think is the um, the origin of that trouble or, or the core of it? Well, uh, that's a deep question. But the origin of it is the compulsion that money creates for the economy to grow and grow and grow exponentially and forever. Uh, that's, you could say, almost a design feature of money, although it wasn't consciously designed that way. But it compels growth. And by growth, we, we're not talking about necessarily more wealth. We're talking about more things that are exchanged for money. That's what growth means. Mm-hmm. So if I um, do a favor to somebody and they don't pay me for it, that's not considered to be economic growth. It's not part of economists' calculations. But if I begin paying for something that I wasn't paying for before, that counts as economic growth. And money can be created always as interest-bearing debt uh, based on any new good or service that somebody creates that's exchanged for money. So what does that have to do with globalization? Well, what's happened is that we've run out of new goods and services to create, Uh, not because we don't have enough ideas, but because we're running out of things that can be converted into money. We can't continually increase the amount of petroleum that's in the ground that we pump out and convert into money. We can't cut down more forests every year and convert them into board feet and into money. We can't increase the fish catch every year. Um, we can't continue to grow forever. Mm-hmm. And every time that we reach an impasse in economic growth, it causes a crisis. For example, the crisis that happened in the 1930s or the one that happened in the 1970s or the one that, that's happening today. And whenever that crisis happens, money exerts, some, it exerts this pervasive pressure to find some new realm of human activity to monetize or to commodify. And so it's not just nature, it's also uh, social capital, you could call it, gift relationships. So, for example, one of the biggest uh, growth industries in, the, in, in my lifetime has been food preparation, which was once something that was done on a gift basis. Usually mothers, you know, cooked from raw ingredients, and that's what you ate. But now it's all made by supermarket delis and restaurants, and, and it's prepackaged. So we're paying for something that we once received as a gift. Uh, same thing for childcare. Same thing if you go back enough generations for medicine or entertainment. The village herbalist has been replaced by technological medicine, pharmaceuticals that you have to pay for. And the village get-together to sing songs 
has or to play pick up baseball games or whatever has been placed replaced by the entertainment industry and so what happens when when we run out of stuff out of out of nature and out of gift relationships to convert into monies we have to go somewhere else to find some other land some other country some other culture where there are still things left to be converted into money and we call that opening a market mm-hmm and and basically we're saying you know all of the things that you once did for each other and were self-sufficient in we're going to take those away so it's so free trade says you know we're going to go to some other culture and we're going to say all these things that you once did for each other we're going to make you pay for those we're going to take them away and make you pay for those we're going to destroy your indigenous systems of healing we're going to destroy your subsistence agriculture put you to work making uh, growing com- commodity crops we're going to hook you into the global economy and your previous income of less than $2 a day which everybody bemoans as a terrible tragedy well now you're going to be making your previous income of $2 a day which everybody bemoans as a terrible tragedy now you're going to be making $10 a day uh but you're going to be living a more monetized life you're going to be buying and selling things more so that's on a deep level what what's happened with globalization is simply this desperate pressure exerted by money to always find new realms to commodify. This this is what you have referred to as the commonwealth in its most literal sense. This is this seems to be a concept that has been totally lost in today's society where everything has a price or an owner. Yeah. That is one side of the discussion of how we have we are exploiting or or converting our commonwealth and not really um reflecting the price of its uh despoilation in the price of goods and the other side is something i want to talk about which is the um the mechanism of our economy uh which as you indicated at the beginning relies on continuous growth in fact it has been referred to as a big ponzi scheme and i wonder if you could go into um an overview of the interest economy uh yeah i could go there it it it's not too technical um i think i'll just go maybe a little bit into that uh because what might be more interesting also is the uh, psychodynamics underlying the growth economy mm-hmm. uh but you know basically money has to always grow over time because it's created through interest bearing debt which means that at any given moment the amount of money owed is more than the amount of money in existence debt is always greater than the amount of money in existence because it's created when a bank makes a loan essentially mm-hmm. or when the federal reserve buys a a, a government security uh, and creates money um and So who's the bank going to make a loan to? Is it going to if you go to the bank and say I have this great idea, I'm going to uh replant this forest and restore it and protect it from development and I'd like a million dollars, please. And the banker says that's a beautiful idea, but how are you going to pay me back? You say, well, I'm not. Well, the banker isn't going to give you that money. But if you say I'm going to cut down a forest and sell the lumber and build a housing development, and i'm going to pay you back with interest and i'm going to get rich too the banker will lend you money for that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so money goes that's the iron law of money money goes to he who will create or she who will create more of it and if there are no what's happening today is that there are there aren't that we're we're overbuilt um and there aren't that many good business plans that are going to create even more goods and services because of the depletion of the commons uh which means that there's not that much room for growth and that means that lending doesn't happen which means money stagnates and wealth polarizes um so would you say that we're at the economic impasse that we are in today uh because of this depletion of the commons and the only way to turn it around is to look for a totally different basis for our economy um including as you alluded to in your book 
um, a zero or negative interest uh, monetary system. Yeah, you know, we, we, we have a, a money system that is consistent with growth. It's aligned with growth. It encourages growth and it demands growth. And that is obviously no longer what we need on Earth today. Lots of environmentalists and philosophers are understanding that. You know, we can't always grow forever and ever. That's unnatural. No species does that. I mean, species will go through a time sometimes of rapid growth as they fill their niche in the ecosystem. Uh, organisms, teenagers, go through a period of rapid growth, but then the growth levels off. We have a money system that doesn't allow that to happen. And so when the politicians are saying, well, we've got to somehow reignite economic growth, we've got to get the economy growing again, we've got to stimulate demand, it's, it's, it's tantamount to looking at your teenager saying, you know, Jimmy grew six inches last year, but now he's only grown one inch. You know, maybe we should give him some growth hormones. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should get that growth going again. We should drill in the Alaskan wildlife refuge. You know, we should do something to, to, to eke out some more growth. But really what we need is a money system that doesn't depend on necessitate or compel endless growth. Mm -hmm. and, and we see that this transition is really wanting to happen. The money system isn't working very well anymore because A, there's no more room for growth or not much more, at least not fast enough to prevent debts from growing faster than, than uh, GDP. Well, the, yeah. the other thing about the growth that we see, particularly in Wall Street, is that it's artificial. Um, it's not caused by uh, real um, innovation or whatever. It's caused by uh, acquisition, mergers, um, uh, book entries like Enron, and it really encourages people into fraud. So anyway, let's get back to what your solution is or a solution. Well, one solution I, in the book, I, I describe about six or seven pillars of what I would call a sacred economy. Uh, one solution is to have an, a money system that is based on negative interest so that if you hold money, it becomes less and less valuable. You know, it, it decays, which makes it the same as everything else in the universe or everything else in nature, which returns to its source. Today we have uh, an unnatural money system because it doesn't decay, but we link it to a world that does. So we have an ever-growing money system linked to a world that returns to its source. Therefore, we need to have more and more of the world monetized, propertized, and so forth. Uh, so one solution then is to have a negative interest money system where... Um, well, the effects of it are profound, but one thing that it does is it allows money to circulate without there being growth. It discourages hoarding. Um, it, dis it, it encourages long-term thinking because, well, the example I give is, you know, say you own a forest and you can, you can choose to either clear-cut it and dig a quarry there and destroy the land forever for a hundred million dollars, or you can log it sustainably forever for one million dollars a year, what would you do? Probably most people listening would say, well, I'd like to preserve that forest and I'd still get a million dollars a year. But the economically logical choice is to cut it down, put that million dollars in an interest-bearing investment, or that hundred million dollars in an interest-bearing investment and make two million a year or three million a year and if you don't do that... Not in any bank I know. Well, if you bought long-term treasury bonds or something like that, or if you have that kind of money, you can get high returns on these risky investments that you know will get bailed out. Mm -hmm. So it's, they're not actually risky. I heard about a, a town in Canada that uh, tried this experiment, and within months, there was zero unemployment. The economy was absolutely booming. And... And um, you talk about uh, this experiment, and I guess it's not an experiment. It's actually a, a monetary system in Switzerland, local local currency. 
Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that. That that's totally fascinating. Well, you're, the one you were thinking about wasn't in Canada; it was in Austria. But uh-huh. yeah, I mean, negative interest has been tried a few times and seems to work really well. But it's never really been tried on a mass scale. Uh, and I think you know, I think we're entering a, a time of experimentation. A lot of people are creating new kinds of currencies and trying them out on a local level or on, on the internet. And I think we're kind of learning what works and what doesn't, and we're creating models that can be implemented when the system as we know it begins to fall apart. Well, it's already begun, but it's falling apart uh, more rapidly now. Uh, but, I, you know, so, no one has proved it on a mass scale yet that it what, works. What is the essence of this local currency that makes it work when the regular economy doesn't? Um, well... In the Great Depression, uh, when a lot of these ideas were tried out for the first time, there was uh, an absence of national currency. Uh, There was a shortage of money. People were hoarding their money. Uh, But people still had goods and services to exchange, but they just didn't have the money to do it. So that created a, a vacuum in which local currencies... They were called emergency currencies in the Great Depression. They, they became viable. I mean, you see the same thing happen in, you know, PO, prisoner of war camps and prisons and stuff where people use cigarettes for money. Right. So it, they naturally emerge in times of crisis. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, we are entering a time of, of crisis and we can design money that consciously embodies the things that we want to create on Earth. Because really, you know, money is a human creation. It's a story. It only has value because we give it value through our perceptions and through our agreements. Um, and, and you think, you know, if that's the case, then why not create a money system that encourages us to do all the beautiful things we want to do on Earth instead of it being always the enemy of every noble impulse? I mean, why, why should it be that... If you want to go and teach people to garden in the inner city, uh, no one's going to pay you very much to do that. But if you want to go uh, open check cashing outlets in the inner city, uh, uh, payday loans or something like that, then you can make a lot of money doing that. Mm-hmm. When it's just a social agreement, why have we agreed that things that destroy the ecosystem and society are rewarded and and things that that heal are not as highly rewarded why it's just our agreements and and there's a reason for that um which i go into in the book that that these that money is is it's a story a system of agreements that's based on deeper stories about what is you know what is a human being what's the nature of existence and why are we here what's the purpose of life uh, these are the, the deep defining stories of our civilization, or you could say the myths of our civilization that are changing today. And the money system, which is part of these narratives, has to change also. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, there has to be a complete social collapse for this new age of sacred economy to come about? Um. I think, I'm not sure what, what we mean by a complete collapse. I think that we'll, we have to go through a moment where it seems that, it seems at least that the world is falling apart. We have to have that experience where everything that was once certain becomes no longer certain. The nature of the, maybe if I say a little bit about these defining stories, um, you know, the first is the story of self, I call it, which says, what are you? You are a discrete, separate individual uh, among other separate individuals in an external universe. Uh, You are a bubble of psychology in a prison of flesh. (laughs) Um, You are programmed by your genes to maximize your rational self-interest and so forth. And so it's, this, this is not the truth or not anymore the truth we once believed it very deeply um, but it based on this story 
we have built all of the institutions of our culture, um, including the money system, which actually makes us separate. Money creates this, helps create this, the truth of the story. You know, it, it puts us into competition. Um, it replaces the gifts that glue communities together with money transactions, which create no bond. And um, so it is part of this story of separation, which is falling apart. It's falling apart in physics with the, the collapse of the observer-object distinction. It's falling apart in biology, where we recognize that we're not all in competition with each other, that, that, that any, every being has an important contribution to make to the whole, and the loss of any being weakens everybody. Um, it's, we're no longer resonating with it spiritually. We're understanding our interconnectedness. And, you know, so the money system is becoming, in a sense, obsolete. And the other part of the defining story is the story of the people. I call it the, the story of ascent, which says that it's humanity's destiny to conquer nature and to become the lords and masters of nature and someday maybe even to not even need nature anymore. You know, we'll synthesize our food, we'll upload our consciousness into computers and so forth. The Jetsons, you know, no, no, mm -hmm. where there are no plants in the whole, in the whole future. And, and, um, so of course, you know, by the year 2000, we will have conquered all disease. You know, that's what people were saying back in the forties and fifties and we'll have 200 year lifespans. And, and this story is no longer as compelling as it was in the 1950s. We don't believe it anymore. So the money system, though, is still part of that old story. It compels endless growth. And it, it says, yeah, we're going to turn the world into property. We're going to make it ours. We're going to become the lords and masters of nature, as Descartes put it. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the money system is based on old myths. The new myths, the new defining stories, I think, are the connected self that understands our interbeingness. And on the collective level, it's co-creative partnership in love with Earth. Mm. And this, this is a new relationship that began maybe in the, on a mass level in the 1960s. Well, I want to go into that in some depth, but we have to take a short break now, and then we'll be right back with our <clears throat> guest, Charles Eisenstein. Got an extra 30 seconds? That's all it takes to unlock the power of your birthday and unleash your true potential. Visit www.birthdayco.com and find out what's hidden in your birth date. Now from the publishers of The Secret comes The Code, a simple guide to unlocking your true potential. Visit birthdayco.com to learn more. Why hide your true talents? with Charles Eisenstein discussing sacred economics, money, gift, and society in the age of transition. Uh, Charles, we were talking before the break about the disintegration of community and the shift towards a connective self in co-creative partnership with the earth. Is this what you mean by the age of reunion? Yeah. Um, yeah, the age of reunion is kind of a shorthand for all of that, for these... Uh, new defining myths and it's more than just myths or, or stories. It's also a, a state of being mm -hmm. that certainly ancient cultures understood and that we kind of lost uh, through the course of civilization. So I call it reunion because we're uh, rediscovering it um, partly from learning from indigenous cultures, uh, how to live, um, you know, and absorbing their cosmologies and partly through even, you know, modern physics um, and finally through the breakdown of separation, which just isn't working for us anymore. 
I think that uh, all we have to look around uh, the the web or or on television to see the protests um, mushrooming around the world. Uh, People are sensing very, very deeply that our economy isn't working, that the world isn't working, and they're looking for other solutions. Um, How uh, can, can we create these solutions in practical terms within the context um, or, or incremental development of our current societies? Well, sometimes you can create things through incremental development, and other times there has to be what you might call a transformation, uh, a, a birth process. I think that, I mean, certainly, like on a personal or community level, we can begin living a sacred economy right now. Part of the, and I could go into the, that, you know, the personal dimension. Um, on a social dimension also, there's two things we can do. One is to begin to, to create models uh, and systems that will be marginal or alternative until the dominant system falls apart, which it is doing. And the other thing we can do is we can hasten the collapse of the dominant system. For example, we can uh, shrink the room for growth by protecting various uh, items of natural and social capital, protecting rainforests from being developed, protecting cultures from being um, westernized, and you know, just making some things off limits to the growth machine that hastens the collapse and mitigates its severity because there's more wealth left over. Okay, well, within the current uh, socio-political paradigm, that ain't going to happen. How, how would you envision, or what, what advice would you give President Obama or the president of the day for uh, making some decisions that may be unpopular but will br- bear fruit well, I mean, I think that President Obama is, is very much a creature of the system that he inhabits. I don't think that the change is going to come from appealing to our leaders to make such changes. Um, I mean, I offer, you know, practical proposals in, in the book, for example. Uh, I mean, you could have a prof- profound uh, change if you allowed the uh, or compelled the Federal Reserve Bank to uh, charge interest, charge negative, I mean, charge a, a, a levy on deposits in the Federal Reserve. That is essentially the modern version of negative interest, mm-hmm. as was pioneered in, in the 1930s. Um, another thing would be to shift the tax system away from income and sales and toward resources and pollution, mm-hmm. so that you know you say it becomes you make it very very expensive to pollute. Um, and you disallow the externalization of costs, which says I manufacture something, but society pays the costs. So, for example, why is lettuce, a head of lettuce in Pennsylvania, cheaper to buy from California than it is to grow locally? A head of lettuce from California is cheaper. Why is that? Partly it's because that head of lettuce doesn't include the price of the transportation network that was built and that allows interstate trucking um, doesn't reflect that cost. Society pays that. doesn't reflect the cost of oil spills that are inevitable when you pump so much oil that fuels the trucks. The oil companies don't have to pay that. They have free insurance from a, a gigantic disaster. Society pays those costs. Society pays the costs of the pollution that make people sick. Future generations pay those costs. So if you simply uh, internalize those costs by having, you know, maybe very expensive pollution permits and and other things, then, you know, that head of lettuce becomes very expensive. Mm -hmm. So you're really calling for a holistic view of uh, the whole um, wealth-generating mechanism. And wealth, I'm talking about... Um, anything that we grow, make, or or exchange. Um, 
you you talk about going to a gift economy, which sounds <clears throat> uh, a little more idealistic than some of the zero interest or negative interest solutions you recommend. <laughs> mm-hmm. What do you think is doable in this transition period that could actually bring us some some tangible benefit in the foreseeable future? Well, um, first I'll say that when I speak of gift economy, I'm talking in two ways. One is to align money more closely with the principle of the gift. For example, you don't accumulate gifts, you pass them on. So, for example, negative interest allows, uh, encourages that because you can't, get wealthier and wealthier by controlling and owning money. Uh, You have to let other people use it and they can pay you back later. Um, I won't go too much into that right now. Uh, But also, I think that that we can see a gift economy growing already. The internet is very much a gift economy. You don't, people, people create content and essentially give it away. Most people don't charge money for people to come to their Facebook page, for example. So a lot of functions that were once very expensive, for example, uh, classified ads, uh, tens of billions of dollars in classified ad revenue have disappeared just because of Craigslist, mm-hmm. which is free. Um, real estate agency, uh, travel agents, um, stockbrokers, um, and to a lot of to a large extent, journalism has become. Uh, part of a gift economy. All kinds of content now is being uh, is is free. I, the software I use is open source software to write my books and stuff and to do everything. I mean, almost anything you want to do, you can get open soft open source software to do it. So there is already a gift economy flourishing on the internet. Um, and to really have community, though, we have to recreate it on a local level. So people are doing things like like creating time banks um, and. Uh, local currencies and and uh, ways of sharing that allow us to begin to recover gift relationships, and people are just drawn to it also. Um, and in the book, I also describe some ways to do business. <clears throat> excuse me, to do business from a gift mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. For example, like um, well, Radiohead did this. The band Radiohead at one point they released an album. And they said, you pay whatever you want for this album. So I, you know, in that spirit, when I, when I give talks, usually uh, the cost is, I say, self-determined based on your feeling of gratitude and value. Mm-hmm. And that's the way a gift works. You give somebody a gift, but you don't say, and in return, you must give me this. Otherwise, I'll sue you. That's, that's the mentality of interest, right? You know, otherwise I'll sue you. But, but, you, but you allow the recipient to give you a return gift whenever is appropriate. Uh, and, yeah. What's the role of beauty in a sacred economy? <sighs> well, today and for hundreds of years, the activities that have been rewarded by the money system are those that make more of it, that add to the realm of commoditized paid goods and services. Because that was aligned with this story of ascent that I talked about, the program to master nature and to make it ours. And as that priority is now changing and we want to heal the planet and heal society. And that's what young people especially are drawn to. But everybody, you know, people aren't excited anymore about contributing to the, to, to the growth machine um, and not really that excited about, you know, what I really want to do in life is increase the market share of this product. <laughs> you know, like people are drawn to, to you know, permaculture, you know, um, and, and to, to justice and to all of these beautiful things. That today, that's not where the money is. It conflicts with the money system. Mm-hmm. But as we align money with the new values, then the most beautiful thing you can do will also be aligned with the most profitable thing you can do. Uh, and I mean that very literally. That, for example, if pollution becomes very, very expensive to make, 
and you invent something that reduces emissions by 90%, that is a hot commodity. I mean, that's, that's very valuable because mm-hmm. you can really cut somebody's costs. Today, you invent something like that, and there's no financial incentive for anybody to implement it. And right. that's not where the R&D goes. You know, it's not going to... If you're already under this government standard, reducing it by another 50 or 90% isn't going to help you at all. Uh, so... So are, are you suggesting that... Um, this, this, I have to say, kind of utopian vision where people will be able to earn their livelihood by doing things that are good for the world um, will work? Yeah. Why wouldn't it work? What are people, your criteria for right livelihood? I think that, it, well, see, this gets into another thing where, where you know, we think that the way to determine right livelihood is to kind of calculate your ecological footprint and reason out what the effects of your actions will be. And, and basically comes down to maximizing a number. But I think where we're moving is toward a more heart-based way of making decisions. So, you know, sometimes I, I get letters from people who say, um, you know, I really like what I'm doing, but I can't see that it's making the world better. You know, and I feel guilty about what I'm doing. And I think that if you genuinely like what you're doing, then you should do it. And eventually what happens is that um, what was once exciting becomes not exciting anymore as you give yourself permission to really follow your heart. Because what people really want to do deep down is to give, to give of their unique gifts, ultimately any job that you have that you, that doesn't engage your gifts or that channels them toward a purpose that isn't beautiful to you is going to feel like, like not why you were put here on earth. You'll feel like, like, you know, I'm just living the life I'm paid to live. I'm not living my life. Any job like that or a relationship where you're not giving your gifts and your gifts aren't appreciated and honored will become intolerable. So, Well, and the reason for that is that we are born into gratitude. On some level, we realize that this life, this earth, the air we breathe, our our bodies, I mean, everything, we didn't earn them. We didn't do something to deserve them. Life itself is a gift. And the natural response of receiving such a gift is gratitude, which is the desire to give in turn. We're all born into gratitude, and we all have an important gift to give, just like every other species does. As I said before, you know, you take one species out of an ecosystem, you take away the wolves, does that mean the deer are better off? No. They end up being worse off, and every other being in that ecosystem becomes worse off. And the same is true of, of humanity and of, of each of us individually. We all have a, a gift that's called forth from us, by our experience of the world and by the needs that we perceive. And I think that we have to begin listening to that call and to recognize it um, and no longer enact this struggle between what we think is good and what we want to do. I mean, money is the agent of that struggle, which tries to compel us to do things we don't really want to do. In in an ironic sense, the... Um... Uh, layoffs and the contraction of the economy is forcing people to reevaluate uh, what they do in the world, and they are choosing to follow their spirits, um, <laughs> whether or not they're making any money out of it, and and putting food on the table is a different question. Yeah, I mean, I think that that the unemployment problem doesn't have to be a problem. Um, it's you know, one of the main reasons for unemployment is that we're becoming more and more productive uh, thanks to technology. And it's only a problem if the results of that productivity aren't distributed to everybody. The Mm -hmm. problem today is that if you don't have a job, you don't get the results of this productivity. So we have unemployment and a glut at the same time. There's not enough demand, but there's, it's easy to make enough stuff. And this has been uh, an economic problem, you know, that, 
recognized since the time of Karl Marx and, and before, the, you know, the problem of overproduction. Um, what we need is an economic system that allows us to work less rather than to consume more. Yes, and and uh, a sense of equity uh, at the top corporate levels. I, I just heard on the news this morning that Bank of America, that's laying off 4,000 workers, just gave two employees $11 million in severance pay. Yeah. It, it's insane. Yeah, it's quite insane. Uh, and it doesn't have to be this way. You know, naively, you'd think that that if productivity doubles in a couple decades, which it has, then everybody should be able to work half as much. Mm. And there are some countries in Europe that are doing that, that have shortened the working day. Yeah. um, Germany did that during the recession um, so that they wouldn't have to fire people. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately that's where we're going. You know, the only reason we haven't gone there decades or even centuries ago is because we've always chosen to consume more. And that's a choice that's been forced upon us by the money system. But mm-hmm. it's not necessary. Um, we could all work less instead. We could work as much as hunter-gatherers worked or high medieval peasants. You know, hunter-gatherers worked about 20 hours a week, uh, according to anthropologists. And high medieval peasants had, like, every saint's day off, which was like 150 of them or something like that. Uh, and we have the potential for that amount of leisure, too, which I think... You know, um, we have this idea that that leisure is kind of an indulgence and we have to steel ourselves against uh, indolence and, and, and laziness. But I think actually when people have empty space, empty time, they begin to want to create something. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is a revolution in, in ourselves and um, toward self-trust and and to end the war against the self, which is the interior reflection of the war against nature that we've been carrying on for a long time. Mm, beautifully put. There, there was another uh, point that you made in your book. Um, I'm just going to read a passage that impressed me. Um, you're talking about the... Uh, acceleration of the transition and you say so it shall be for humanity generally a few short years of darkness and upheaval perhaps this phase of accelerated transition will be what i speculated about earlier as the rapid succession of many ages completing the millions of years long age of tools hundreds of thousands of years long age of fire tens of thousands of years long age of symbolic culture, millennia long age of agriculture, century long age machine age, decades long information age. The singularity is nigh and then a transition qualitatively more profound than any before it. I think that's such a profound vision of what we see around us, this sense of incredible escalation. Yeah, I, I really do see that we are nearing the the completion of a process that is thousands or millions of years long. Um, that you know, that's that's why I think that I mean, we have a sense that that you know really important things are happening, and that we're not going to be able to go back to the normalcy. Um, of our childhoods. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe I'm being grandiose about it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the hippies had that feeling in the 1960s, too. So maybe I'm just as deluded as they were. But I don't think they were deluded either. I think that they were glimpsing something whose time was almost here. But we still needed to go th- to take the uh, age of separation to, uh, to its real extreme and that's what we've done in the 40 years since the 1960s. It's interesting. I, you, you say in your book, you can't go back to the womb. And I interviewed Greg Braden last week, and he said that the past is past. You forget about it. It's not coming back. The good old days will never happen again. So just accept it and get on with it. Yeah, I think that... Yeah, I, I would agree with Greg Braden on that. 
So the it that we have to get on with um, is, uh, how would you characterize it? Well, we're going to go through a time, you know, the, the old certainties are falling away. The old normal is disintegrating. And we're going to go through a time where the old story, you could say, and we're going to go through a time where we don't know what's real anymore. And we don't, for the most part, have a new story that we can use to organize the world. And that's what a story is. It's a system of interpretations, uh, a way to make meaning of things. And I think that we're approaching a time where on a mass level, people just don't know what's true anymore. They don't know what's real anymore. Nothing makes sense. People get that on an individual level a lot when they lose their job or something or when you know, a relationship falls apart. Uh, it's almost a sense of vertigo. Mm. And I think we're entering that on a collective level. And yeah. when we're going to go through that time where, where you know, we really get, I mean, we're thrust into the present moment. And once we go through that empty place, that place between stories, then these new stories that I'm talking about of the connected self uh, and co-creative partnership in love with Earth will come into their own. But we have well, to go through a birth process in between. Well, I think books like yours are a very important milestone on that birth process. And uh, I highly commend Charles Eisenstein's book, Sacred Economics, to all of our readers. And your website, Charles, is charleseisenstein.com? Um, yeah, that's one. Or my other book, uh, The Ascent of Humanity, has a, a website with vast amounts of material, ascentofhumanity.com. Okay, great. Well, that leaves me to just thank you so much for being our guest today, Charles. Most appreciated, and uh, good luck with your work in the world. Thanks, Miriam. It was my pleasure. Goodbye. Bye. Well, that's our show for this week, and I hope you'll join us next week on NCR Radio when my guest will be Daniel Pinchbeck. We'll be talking about his book, What Comes After Money? an anthology of essays by 20 visionary thinkers who explore the roots of the modern economic crisis and propose a range of solutions. If you enjoyed our show, why don't you check out our archive and our community of readers and authors at ncreview.com. Now we're going to conclude our show with the track of the week, selected by Scott Johnson of the Positive Music Association from among members of the PMA. This week, we're featuring a song by Jan Garrett and J.D. Martin called I Dreamed of Rain.
J.D. Martin. They are just two of the PMA's growing group of musicians who are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. To find out more about Jan and J.D.'s music, go to garrettmartin.com. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T hyphen M-A-R-T-I-N dot com. To discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to PositiveMusicAssociation.com. And to explore the new consciousness, go to NCReview.com. I'm Miriam Knight. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>